Hello, everyone. Welcome on the second installment of our Common Biases Encountered In. Uh, this is podcast 29, and we are talking about common biases encountered in patient research. If you're interested to know more about common biases that we've found in uh, ACP research, please listen to podcast number 28, our previous one. And also, Happy New Year, because this is airing in 2023. Today with me, I've got Rhiannon Phillips, an Associate Director of Behavioral Science. Uh, welcome back, Rhiannon. Hi, everyone. Lovely to be here. And David Manschrek, a behavioral science analyst, who's also been on the podcast before. Hi, David. Yeah, it feels like it's been a while since I've been on the podcast, but happy to be back. Welcome back. Why we are talking about patient research? Well, at HRW, we do a lot of patient research across various therapy area, and we feel so strongly about it and about making sure that we do it right and keep the patient's interests at heart and that our insight really acts as that reality between what happens between the patient perspective, that we have consolidated our knowledge and passion into an initiative called Spotlight. Rhiannon and David, as you have both been closely involved in that process, would you like to tell us a little bit about what Spotlight is and how it came to be? Yeah, thanks so much, Alex. Spotlight is our initiative for authentic patient centricity. And it's an initiative connecting a specialist team. Our vision at HRW is to put patients at the heart of everything we do with three pillars in mind. First, to give people a voice and understand them as more than just a patient or a demographic, but as people who are more than the sum of their parts. Our commitment to methodological innovation and integral partnership with behavioral science will ensure that we can deliver success across both the qualitative and quantitative space. From a behavioural science perspective, there are biases which are more relevant to patient research and which we see come up repeatedly when we do this patient-focused research. But sometimes it can come as a bit of a surprise to learn that some of the biases affecting patients don't always originate within the patient themselves. Sometimes these biases reflect the environment surrounding the patient, and that might be the physical environment, so how easy or difficult it is to access treatment. So if we think logistically the distance to specialist treatment centres, for example, or in non-UK countries, sometimes insurance requirements and what will and won't be covered. But it can also be the social environment and interactions with HDPs. For example, when we speak about patient empowerment, it might be easy to think the patient empowerment is the act of giving patients information. But empowerment isn't just about the provision of information. It's actually about addressing any patient's need for support and their need to have support to better understand and make use of the information provided. So it's not just about intelligence and ability to interpret information. It's also about how that information is framed. And also the timing of information delivery is also really important, particularly when we take into account the patient's emotional state. If someone, for example, has just received very emotionally loaded diagnosis or information such as for a serious condition or a life-threatening diagnosis, for example, so hearing you have cancer, for instance. One study found that patients actually only remember about 20% of the information given to them in that consultation because the impact of hearing that word of receiving that diagnosis is so significant. So on top of helping patients understand and make use of the information given to them, it's also about repeating that information to help them process it and commit the most important aspects to memory and ensuring that they have the ability to do that. That's right, yeah. And also part of the patient empowerment is empowering everyone that is involved in healthcare decisions that concern the patient. 
And if you'd like to learn more about patient empowerment, um, you can listen to our podcast on the topic. You can find it on hrwhealthcare.com and it's episode 24. But now let's place our attention back on the biases affecting patients. We've come up with a bit of a scenario. Let's say we've got a patient called Fred who suffers from migraine headaches and has depression. Fred's depression came because of the amount of pain he's in, because of his headaches, and because he feels defeated. He feels like his life is affected to such an extent by his headaches. Keeping that in mind, what biases could be affecting Fred? One dynamic that can be impacting not only Fred's behaviors, but also his own perceptions and attitudes towards his condition is stigma. So stigma, of course, is something most people would be familiar with, as most people do either observe or experience it in some area of their lives. But it is a little different in each context. Fred may feel as though speaking about his condition is burdensome for others to listen to. And so if others downplay it or tell him he's being dramatic or that headaches are just something everyone has to deal with, Fred may internalize this. With the HCP, the doctor, Fred may feel as though since migraines are very common and doctors deal with far more serious conditions all the time, his condition is less important. So when the doctor provides perhaps what comes off as an unsympathetic response, this too may become internalized and lead to a lower inclination for Fred to seek the help he needs in the future. This stigma that was rooted from these sorts of cues and experiences, when internalized, can lead to shame. Fred may now be ashamed or afraid of being judged when talking about his symptoms. Considering when he talks about them, he may often get told to go outside or exercise more. These sorts of unsympathetic responses, which can lead to the stigma. Because of this, Fred may cover his symptoms and has developed secretive behavior of going to various places to seek more potent medicine. And one of the other dynamics that we can imagine in this scenario, which we do encounter, is that Fred has told us that he's tried talking to his HCP about his experience and his healthcare needs, but he just doesn't feel listened to. So why should he bother returning again when he receives the same response, the same answers time and time again? What is the point of opening up to a new HCP either? Because past experiences taught him he'll just experience the same kind of dismissal. Just a few headaches, you need to get some more fresh air needs to do some more exercise. If you try cutting out cheese and chocolate, you can take some paracetamol or ibuprofen. All of the things he's tried and he knows don't help him, but he doesn't feel that he's being listened to when he's saying this. So thinking about this sentiment of why should he bother, this attitude of defeat is something called learned helplessness. And it's particularly common to see in this scenario, or these sorts of scenarios where patients have a long journey to diagnosis, either because it's a rare condition or perhaps because it mirrors a number of other conditions, or the symptoms are quite vague in general, sort of, I feel a bit off color, I'm breathless, I get tired a lot, which could be any number of conditions. And we also see it where patients have experienced misdiagnoses as well, which undermines their trust in the healthcare system and its professionals. Also, finally, we sometimes see it in scenarios where, for whatever reason, a patient's condition fails to respond effectively to the prescribed treatment. And the critical thing here is that it's not only a negatively charged emotional state, which is distressing for the patient themselves, but it can also lead the patient to overlook opportunities or not engage with opportunities for treatment that could offer genuine relief from their condition when those opportunities do present. And that's largely because of this past experience. So past experience has taught them nothing works. So why should this be any different? Yes. And in certain therapy areas, we definitely see there can be a long time before someone listens to the patient. To illustrate this, illusion of transparency is a bias that defines these sorts of situations very well. This describes situations where the HCP does not have a full picture 
of what the patient is going through, even if they may think that they do. And adding to this, the patient might think that the HCP should have noticed their experience. However, in the illusion of transparency, the patient may have overestimated the extent that their own mental states, so their thoughts and feelings, are known by others. And in this context, this, of course, is even heightened because patients tend to give HCPs the benefit of the doubt of knowing more about their thoughts and experience than they actually have been provided. So in this context, it's crucial to equip patients, like our friend Fred, with the knowledge to describe their experience openly and thoroughly, and to give HCPs the right cues that allow them to characterize their experience and the confidence to open up potentially difficult conversations. Well, following this um, experiences falling prey sometimes some of these biases, Fred has found uh, for himself a non-medical coping mechanism. So he started comfort eating. And here we saw evidence of the, the ostrich effect. When we know, we know something is not great for us, we prefer to ignore it, to put our head in the sand. In, that's where the name comes from. So as Fred knew here, the eating fast food, which was his comfort food, was not good for him. But it made him feel good. And it made him forget for a little bit about his pain. So he pushed that thought away that it was not good for him and kept comfort eating. As we've been talking about Fred's journey, these biases and Fred's situation and journey through his condition may sound hopeless, but there are ways to overcome these biases and to truly empower patients and to be able to dilute those biases. Absolutely. So thinking about learned helplessness again, one of the main things here is the tone of voice that's used in communications with patients, striking a tone of hope and highlighting marginal gain, but how marginal gains can actually accumulate. So individually, they're not very much, but collectively, it does amount to a difference is important, as is recognising that their journey has or is a difficult one. That recognition is really validating for the patient and that's why it matters. So in communications, it's about working to find the balance between being instructive so they know what it is they are to do, who they should see, what they should say, how to express themselves clearly so that the HCP fully grasps the nature of their situation but also doing that in a tone that's encouraging so that they don't feel like they're being lectured to by a faceless person who ultimately has no idea how hard everything is for them. And that's really the key, walking that tightrope to strike the right balance. And another important aspect to consider here is the health literacy of the patient. Health literacy refers to the set of knowledge and skills needed to obtain, understand, and crucially make use of health information in order to make appropriate health decisions. So of course, health literacy is really critical to empowerment because it's not only about providing information, which is in some ways an easier step to take, but about empowering patients to actually make informed decisions based on the information provided. Briefly, how can that actually be done? There's a few ways that act as overarching guidelines. And one is to produce communications materials that not only provide the most relevant and useful information, but present it in a manner that is digestible and accessible for the audience that it's intended for. So in the same way you wouldn't provide full statistical equations for every study that you provide, the wordiness and the language used to present information is very crucial in this space. Another important aspect is leading patients, such as Fred, to information that they actually need and are most likely to use via increased accessibility, and as well by providing the most relevant information in a timely and accessible fashion. 
Um, and as we've uh, talked about before uh, briefly, empowering the people around the patient is very important so that they know how best to support the patient. An example of this might be making ACPs aware of the patient's needs. So not only around treatment, so even when the treatment might not be working, it's important to build the level of empathy coming from the ACP that shows the patient that they're being listened to, they're being understood and supported, they're being seen. And of course, here, carers and nurses play a very important role and all the other personnel involved and being around the patient need to be aware of this. And on that note, we've reached the end of our podcast. Let us know if there is anything you'd like to share from your experience working with patients or doing patient research, or if you have any questions about understanding patient research better, you can reach out at shift at hrwhealthcare.com or on Twitter at hrwshift. But for now, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> and goodbye from me as well. And happy new year again. We look forward to a rich assortment of podcasts that we hope you will enjoy. And we've got plenty planned. See you on the next one. 